Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk about things which uh, interest me. Uh, I told the chair a bit earlier that uh, well, I should definitely be introduced as an economist uh, and also a philosophy groupie. I take it everyone knows what that is. Uh, and I assume that there are a lot of people here who are not economists and perhaps even not philosophers. So I'm going to try and attempt something really quite, uh, quite general. Uh, however, I think that it presents challenges to the, what's called the mainstream theory of Russian choice. Indeed, what I want to talk about is a whole series of uh, examples, many of which you'll recognize. <laughs> And then perhaps at the end we can talk uh, about uh, uh, the, the challenges that they make, if any, to the mainstream theory of rational choice. So first let me uh, introduce the, the topic of rationality. In general, in philosophy, of course, it goes back at least to the ancient Greeks and, uh, and possibly beyond that. And uh, it keeps re-emerging all through the history of philosophy. In economics, it arguably goes back to the middle of the 19th century. And certainly by the end of the 19th century, uh, perhaps after the discovery by economists of the differential calculus, it became a big deal. And I think it's uh, true to say that it's still the lens through which economists view economic life is through optimizing behavior, which they call rational behavior. Uh, of course, these days, there's a, a number of young upstarts, neuroeconomics, uh, uh, behavioral economics, and so on and so forth. And, but it's still a bit the case that, uh, that they're sort of targeting the Goliath of of uh, rational choice theory, and as yet, it doesn't look to me anyway as though they are, have any better weapons than David did when David tackled Goliath. But that's my prejudice, we can, you can contest that with me later. So let me say what uh, rationality in, in economics, just let's have a, a potted picture in front of us so that we know uh, what we're talking about. Uh, basically preference optimization. So the little picture, the little cartoon that economists have in their mind when they build their models is one of agents that have a preference, a ranking of the alternative outcomes, and then uh, they use that in the way of optimizing it. That is sounds fancy, but the simple thing that's assumed is that uh, from whatever the available set of alternatives is, they choose the highest ranked. And that's the essence of the mainstream model of rational choice as developed by economics. Choosing the highest ranked available. There's a particular strain, though, that I think is, is important to note. And it entered economics... Uh, uh, against the background of positivism in scientific method. Uh, when I studied at uh, UCL and at LSE in the mid-1960s, uh, there was a book by uh, 
Introduction to Economics book by uh, Professor LSE Richard Lipsy, and its title was An Introduction to Positive Economics. Actually, a wonderful, a wonderful book. Uh, although I, you know, perhaps have reservations about that way of looking at economic life, but it was a wonderful organizing principle. The positive variety of preference optimization uh, really draws on something that economists call revealed preference. And the idea there, and this will keep, keep resurfacing throughout what I have to say, is that if rational agents make choices, then their preferences thereby get revealed. That if somebody chooses A rather than B, then one could certainly say that they their ranking, which is presumed or inferred, uh, but their ranking is that A is at least as good as B, and if you observe enough possible choices, you may even be able to conclude that A is ranked strictly higher than B. So the idea that uh, behavior reveals something which is not directly observable, that is, that people's choice, their behavior, may reveal uh, their underlying preference, which is pretty much presumed in economics. That's kind of a central variety of the mainstream model of rational choice. This now, I think, leads to what I think has become the central idea in rational choice theory, uh, not limited to economics, but to political science, psychology, and many, many other social sciences. And that is the idea of rationalizability. It's a horrible word. And, and I think most uh, rational choice theorists now wish that it had been called something different, since a preference is actually, uh, in mathematics, a binary relation. Most of us would wish that it was uh, called uh, not rationalizability, but relationalizability. But that's even uglier. <laughs> and harder to get your, your tongue around, let alone get your head around. But you may see why, why I, well, why, well, we in rational choice theory uh, think like that. But at this point, you might think of it, uh, you, you might not want to be as specific as is the case in economics and thinking, well, I mean, if we take the mainstream theory of rational choice, there's only one thing that could rationalize choices. Only one thing, given the model, and that's the agent's preference. That is all there is in the model to rationalize the choices. I suggest that we start at this point by thinking in very general terms, and I particularly like uh, the, the uh, opening account of uh, rationalizability given by the philosopher Donald Davidson. Simply this, and it's wonderfully simple, simply to give good reasons. To give good reasons for why you chose this when these other things were available. Simply give good reasons. And leave it open whether the only good or, if you like, rational reasons have to boil down to a preference. I mean, that, in, in, I think, would be begging the question if we started by assuming that. Um, 
What I've said is pretty much true of the way that rational choice theory is used uh, throughout the social sciences, but I want to note one curious and interesting exception. Uh, if there are any psychologists here, or perhaps I should say if there's any Freudian uh, psychoanalysts here, then you will recognize the term rationalizability. It was introduced by uh, Ernest Jones, who I think was born in 1878, thereabouts, in a little South Wales village uh, near where my family comes from, as it happens, Gowerton in South Wales. And he, uh, he introduced the term rationalizability in 1908, way before it was common currency in economics. And it was like this. It was actually more associated with irrational behavior. In fact, it was explicitly associated with irrational behavior. Behavior that, uh, un under uh, therapeutic interviews, uh, behavior that the uh, somebody who clearly was seeking help, uh, that they would, in order to confront what seems to be irrational or uh, problematic behavior, uh, it was often observed that individuals rationalize what they did. Often violent or perverse or deviant behavior that they would, nearly all, all patients or nearly all subjects would try and rationalize what they did. So it's kind of fascinating that its first appearance in social science is associated most definitely with uh, an irrationality, rather than these days the concept is, is uh, very much part of rational choice theory. Okay, uh, to those who aren't economists or who don't uh, do much work or reading within the framework of rational choice theory, it may seem a curious thing right from the beginning. But it's important to understand why, in other words, what its role is in economics, because that makes it then seem a little less unreasonable. Uh, economists for a long time have been aware that if you, well, first let me back off a bit, uh, from the days of utilitarians and that sort of interest in reform and social policy, uh, there's been some sort of interest in well-being. It was used to be taken in a thoroughly Benthamite utilitarian sense. But since then, it's taken in all sorts of other ways too. And from very early on, economists were interested in uh, the the conditions under which behavior, particularly choice behavior, would reveal well-being or individual welfare, or related concepts of happiness, desire, fulfillment, and so on. So you may think, well, uh, why start with rational behavior? And I guess, I guess the, the, the idea must be that if anything is going to reveal individual well-being or welfare, it's more likely to be rational behavior than any other, than irrational behavior or any other sort of behavior. And that, that role that it has in economics of, uh, of, of uh, at least under some conditions, 
uh, uh, sort of providing at least evidence of what individual welfare or well-being might be is very important in the economist's use of rational choice theory. Okay, so that's uh, all I have to say to give you a little potted sort of background about mainstream rational choice theory. If there are no questions, I'll go on now to talk about a series of uh, what, what's becoming known uh, these days, if you look at recent issues of the journal Economics and Philosophy, what's becoming known as uh, challenging examples. They're all, of course, highly contentious, at least the, the message for rational choice theory and its, and its use in various contexts is, uh, is highly contentious. So let me just sort of tell you these stories or put these challenging examples before you and, uh, and then uh, perhaps afterwards we can discuss uh, what, what we can conclude from them. Ah, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so the first one, I'm sure nearly everyone here, is anyone who hasn't heard of Buridan's Ass? Buridan's Ass, I refer to the beast of burden and not the anatomical expression. I mean, uh, there's American English and, and British English sometimes get confused over this. Having taught in America, I can attest to that. Okay, so Buridan's ass. Philosophers here probably also know Leibniz's ass. Uh, now, I mean, Buridan was actually a philosopher of sorts, I think everyone would probably agree that Leibniz was a much better philosopher. And yet, actually, uh, with a little bit of mathematics, uh, the, the problem of Leibniz's is, is Leibniz's ass is, is really, it's not very deep. It's really quite easily solved. So Buridan's ass is the ass that is worth really considering. And there's, very, there's different versions of this story. One of them, one of them, is the one which is common in economics is that an ass is facing two, if you can imagine it, identical piles of hay. In another version, uh, I think the one which philosophers are more familiar with, it's a pile of hay and a pail of water. So this uh, indecisive ass is equidistant from both and can't make up his or her mind which pile to go to. So the poor ass starves, in the economist version, starves to death. Uh, and in the philosopher's version, it's even, even worse for the ass, the, economy, uh, the, the philosopher's version, the ass dies of both hunger and thirst. <laughs> so, uh, now, there are some low-level lessons about rational choice theory that one could take from this. One is to ponder the difference between what uh, the logicians might call an incomplete preference or ranking and being indifferent. Economists uh, very much favor uh, indifference. And uh, people from other disciplines sometimes, especially philosophy, uh, more interested in incommensurability that leads to incomplete rankings. Incomplete ranking means that there are, you know, there are alternatives that you have no preference over. And 
indifference would mean that you, you're actually indifferent. Uh, it's kind of curious because it seems perfectly, at least with the indifference version, uh, there's a couple of comments one can make, that a bystander could, it would have been so easy to help this poor beast of burden. One more, one more piece of straw would have made the, uh, would have made the ass non-indifferent. In any case, even if a kind bystander had not sort of topped up one of the piles with just a tiny bit more straw, uh, I mean, it would it would have uh, the, the, there'd be no loss, no loss of utility or well-being, however measured, by the ass choosing either. Choosing neither really doesn't seem a terribly rational thing to do. Maybe there's other lessons from Buridan's ass. Now let me tell you another story, uh, first told by Luce and Wafer in their uh, most wonderful book in the late 1950s on games and decisions. Uh, it's a restaurant story. I have my own version of it, but theirs goes something like this, that you go into a restaurant, and let's make it easy by that it's one of these restaurants with a board up. There's no sort of menu on the table. They just write uh, the dishes of the day on a board. And you see their steak and chicken. And if it was me, I might look at that and think, well, you know, I, uh, uh, steak needs more skill of the chef to cook than chicken. Uh, I hate dried up steak. And what are they going to do? They're probably going to just uh, pop the chicken under the grill. Actually, uh, I live next door in New Orleans to a, to a restaurant, and the chef told me that all, almost all chefs fake uh, roast or grilled or whatever it is. They boil the chicken first. I mean, you wonder how they get it out there so quickly to you. It's boiled. They only finish it off by grilling or roasting. <laughs> That's how it can be actually succulent but it hasn't sort of uh, been reduced to, to have the real taste of being grilled or uh, especially roasted. Okay, so, um, but I decide that uh, if I knew, if I, if, if I knew, microphone is still close to your mouth. Oh, okay. If I knew, thanks. If I knew that the, uh, if I knew that the chef was good, I would choose steak, but I'm not sure, so I choose the chicken, and so the waiter, waitress goes off, and then comes back a couple of minutes later and says, uh, oh, by the way, we have uh, truffle souffle, and I said, okay, uh, let me change my order to the steak. Now, you can see what's going on there. The, uh, this type of example is now described by saying that there's an epistemic value to the menu or to the set of available alternatives. I mean, it's not just the simple alternatives as described, but, but knowing what else may be available gives you relevant information about the alternatives. However, if you define the alternatives as steak, chicken, uh, on the one hand, it looks like you're strictly preferring chicken to steak, 
and then a matter of seconds later, you're preferring steak to chicken. That's challenging to uh, the mainstream theory of rational choice. Okay, that's the second story. There's a couple of stories now which are uh, closely related and due to Amartya Sen. Uh, maybe I'll use the board for this one. Uh, suppose that you uh, are at a buffet and a waiter waitresses are walking around with plates and they have slices of cake. Now it's obvious when you look at the cake that these slices of cake they are homogeneous uniform but they are different in size. So suppose somebody comes up to you and uh, they have a cake like this it has a large piece a medium piece and a small piece three pieces on. Suppose you really like cake. So other things, Ketras Parabas, as economists are always fond of saying, Ketras Parabas, uh, you are tempted by the large piece. Now suppose there's uh, another, another one and it has uh, another plate, another waiter or waitress, and it has a medium piece of cake and a small piece of cake. Now, it would be, it would confound mainstream rational choice theorists, especially of the revealed preference variety, to see, oh, think, which would you choose? Well, you, suppose you chose uh, M, the medium slice of cake there, and here you chose the small slice of cake. And a revealed preference theorist might look at that and say, hey, whether you prefer the medium or small size seems to depend on whether there's a large slice available or not. Well, uh, as my grandmother taught me, there's perfectly good reasons why I might have, uh, 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 why those might be my choices. I want to be polite. For all sorts of reasons, it could be that for uh, uh, for, for perhaps there's a social norm. Perhaps I could expect some uh, negative response by other people at the reception or party. Perhaps I won't get invited to the next one because I'm the guy who always takes the big, large slice of, of cake. That, it seems to me, a proper treatment of that because uh, it, it's, it involves strategy. So proper treatment of that would require game theory. Another, though, there's another explanation for such choices which don't require any game theory at all. Uh, for uh, example, the norm need not be a social norm, but it could be a personal norm. It could be that when I look at uh, myself in the mirror every morning, when I wash and shave my face, I want to see what I consider a nice guy, meaning somebody who's polite and, uh, and so on. It's not that I care what other people think of me. What's important in this interpretation is what I think of myself. So the norm could be a personal norm. Well, uh, there you go. You can see, uh, you, you can uh, 
see how, how, how the challenge that that purports to make to reveal preference theories. At this point, it's a good point also to ask you to note that there's a kind of menu dependency. That is, if you insist that choices reveal a preference, the preferences seem to be conditional on what's available. I would rank M above S if L is available, but S above M if L is not available. There are lots of other examples like this. Uh, for example, there's a, a nice story due to, an, uh, most of these stories from now on uh, of this type are due to a march of Sen. Uh, the fruit plate is kind of similar. Suppose that uh, you're at a, a nice dinner, you've all had a nice dinner, and the fruit plate is brought to the table and you're a guest. And suppose that there are two apples and one mango. Well, it's quite possible in my case, I'm, I'm slightly allergic to apples actually, I would want to choose the mango. But I might, I might not. I might uh, still choose the apple because I don't like to choose the last thing available, the last apple available, and deprive other people of it. Again, one can think of this as a social norm or as an individual norm. On the other hand, uh, if it were the case that there were two apples and two mangoes, I take the mango. Now, those choices appear to uh, be impossible to explain by, by, according to the sort of mainstream theory of rational choice, particularly the revealed preference type. Of course, there are responses to this, and I dare say you, you might raise those a bit later. But again, it's one of menu, the, what's going on there, the problem is one of menu dependence. What you appear to prefer depends not on just the properties of the objects, but what's there with them in any particular case. Okay, uh, that's the cake and the fruit. There are other examples due to uh, actually uh, Gertner and Shu. Uh, to do, to consider the problem of the newspaper, the choice of newspaper that you might read. Uh, <clears throat> in this case, suppose there's, uh, we explicitly have the option of doing nothing. We could have added that to these previous examples, but in this case we need it. Suppose there's the possibility of not reading any newspaper, actually with the internet, I guess this story is going to go out of, out of sort of currency fairly quickly. But a few years ago, you, uh, you have a problem of which newspaper you might read. In certain countries, uh, it could be that there's a government newspaper and there's a non-government newspaper. <coughs> and you choose the government newspaper. It may simply not because you particularly like the government, it may just be a better newspaper. And then, suppose that the government shuts down the private sector newspaper, and then you went, okay, now I'm not going to read any paper. There's nothing obviously irrational about doing that. And again, the preferences, if any, that, that those uh, choices reveal involve some kind of menu dependence, dependence on, on the availability of these objects, not just on what the objects are. Okay, the fox and the grapes. 
you all know, it was it just in, in Britain that children get told about the fox and the grapes, you know, the story of the fox and the grapes. Lovely, juicy grapes. However, they are a bit high for the fox, but the fox likes them, goes up and actually uh, uh, spends a bit of time leaping up and just missing it. Keeps jumping up and missing these wonderful looking grapes. And fails. And in the end, the fox sort of uh, wanders off. As, uh, you know, the fox was maybe thinking, well, shall I eat the grapes or shall I go for, shall I go for a prowl? I don't know if foxes prowl, but let's say, eat these lovely grapes or go for a prowl. Those grapes look too good to miss. I'm going to try and eat the grapes, but then fails. And, and then as the fox disgruntled wanders off, the fox says to itself, uh, fox says to itself, I didn't really want them anyway. They look sour. Sometimes it's called the sour grapes story. Well, there's a sequel. I mean, that's fine. I mean, that's a kind of uh, psychologist may maybe will recognize cognitive dissonance going on here. Uh, like the Ernest Jones uh, psychoanalytical rationalization thing, it's, it's an ex post rationalization. Um, it does seem important, there's lots of evidence apparently that people want to think of themselves as, as uh, people who behave consistently in some sense. So there is this, uh, so the fox goes off now. What you may not have heard of is, is the sequel to this story. Normally, it's stopped there. Now, this fox decides to go for a prowl, saying, well, that's what I really wanted to do. The, gra the grapes look sour. Once I jumped up there and I saw them, had a close look, grapes are sour. I'll go for a prowl. Now, uh, right round the corner, the fox comes upon another grapevine. This time the grapes are coming right down to the ground. What do you think the fox does? Having said, I don't like grapes after all, what do you think the fox does now? I think the fox eats the grapes. There could be many sort of messages for rational choice theory uh, from the fox and the grape store, but one of them certainly is whether or not, uh, well, the, the preferences maybe are subject to a kind of fragility or volatility, which even when revealed may make them uh, not perhaps a good foundation for inferring individual well-being or welfare. Now, lest this sounds uh, a bit too sort of light or jokey, this idea has become very important in, in development where there is much, much field work, uh, most of it done in India, but also elsewhere, that show that in times, uh, where, when times get worse, that the food tends to go to the men in the family. Women are, women's health often suffers, and yet in surveys that are done of women's opinion in these situations, the women say, I'm not dissatisfied with the way things are going. I'm fine. They even say sometimes that they're happy under these circumstances. 
So is this, you know, if we really want to base policy on revealed preference, then we need to think about how volatile or fragile, or in particular, uh, whether the preferences are truly exogenous or whether they are endogenous uh, in a troublesome way, in the way that they depend on the objects being ranked. So that would be the message of that one. You all know, at least all the philosophers will know Ulysses and the Sirens, right? Ulysses wanted to listen to the wonderful music of the sirens, but was also uh, knew and understood that if uh, that once he heard it, he'd be lured onto the rocks and eaten. Well, there's a wonderfully ingenious uh, solution to, to this. Uh, uh, Ulysses uh, commanded his crew to lash him to the mast. He commanded them to put wax in their ears so they couldn't hear the music. And just in case, he commanded them to keep their swords ready to deal with him if he should be able to break himself free. Of course, there's an irony in the story. He goes crazy when he hears the, uh, the, the music of the sirens. So what, what messages does this have for rational choice theory? Well, um, it's not completely, well, well, one is the problem that philosophers call acrasia, weakness of will. Uh, an economist looking at that would probably think of acrasia in that case as a kind of implementation problem. The preference is clear, but uh, lacking what it takes to actually implement the preference optimization. Uh, it's an issue in modern uh, mainstream, uh, the, the mainstream rational choice theory in economics. Implementability is actually viewed as uh, an axiom or a property of uh, objectives. So objectives wouldn't be, uh, or at least many economists would regard objectives that are not implementable as not rational. And not long ago, three Nobel Prizes, I mean the Nobel Prize was split three ways uh, between mechanism design economists who would, would hold that view. Okay, so that's Ulysses and the Sirens. Now let me uh, bring in another sort of, not so much a story, but a refocus of attention. So far, the focus of attention in all of these stories has been what you might call consequentialist. It is the outcomes, what agents will get as a result of these choices, which is, that, that's been the focus of attention, rather than the acts of choice themselves. Now, I suspect that many, many of those who are not students in this room uh, also teach or are professionals in some area of life and professional integrity would require that, for instance, that we, we, we don't grade in a corrupt way. Even if we could, we don't. Under the British marking grading system it would be very difficult to grade in a corrupt way, but 
not in not in in the Austrian system and uh, many systems in many other countries. You know, the teacher just grades and that's that. And it's widely uh, it's widely complained of that the you know personal likes and dislikes are, uh, are influencing the grading in a most improper fashion and sometimes worse things. Okay, so these acts. It may be that uh, that people care about acts independently of caring about the outcomes. It, one could easily imagine situations in which perhaps uh, behaving corruptly, let's say in the grading of an exam, uh, doing that could avoid the most uh, terrible situation. That somebody's a, a student's father is a very rich and powerful person and threatens to bring about uh, the fall of the university you know, if their son or daughter doesn't get a doesn't get a first, well, I can easily imagine, and I hope it would be the case that normally say, well, no, we we professional integrity demands that we grade properly. Now, the point the point is that integrity of this sort is defined in terms of the act, kind acts unselfish acts uh, and so on uh, at least a lot of these these classifications of acts don't need to refer to the consequences they can be defined in terms of the acts themselves and in that case uh, especially you know the English saying there's more than one way of skinning a cat it could be that this leads to uh, an apparent choice of consequences which can't be rationalized by preference at all. Um, I think it's particularly uh, important for some of these stories that um, people might, you can imagine them choosing by codes, according to codes of behavior, particularly in this last case in talking about acts. There may be codes of you should do this and not do that. Uh, there's a recent book by Sheena uh, uh, Ienga, uh, uh, a blind Sikh immigrant to New York who became uh, a professor of business at Columbia University, has re re recently written a book on the, on the art of, of choosing. Wonderful book, actually. And she gives an account of her uh, teenage life, and she said uh, I mean, up until that point she lived with her parents who lived, their life was confined to a Sikh community. In, in New York City. And she describes her life of what she wore in the shower, apparently something like boxers, boxer shorts, required <coughs> by Sikh religion or custom, uh, a steel bracelet on her right arm, and so on. I mean, the life that she described was according to a code. I'm not saying that there were no choices left, but the point of starting the book like this is to make the point that much of life maybe code, custom, governed, rather than uh, preference maximization governed. And I found an earlier example, uh, an early example of this from 1577, Russell's Book of Nurture, Bookie of Nurture. Uh, it's in the Harleian manuscript 
4011 in the British Library, if you should care to. Uh, uh, it's kind of very entertaining, should you wish to follow this up. Um, so it's, it refers to uh, the, uh, an age where dinner parties were just becoming uh, the, the, you know, popular, especially amongst the upper classes. So uh, this book of nurture goes like this. I should give a, a warning. You know, like on TV when they say uh, there will be explicit language or used. If you have delicate sensibilities, you might want to put your fingers in your ears right now. Uh, no guest should scratch as if he were looking for fleas or strike his head to squash a nit. He must not pick his nose or allow it to run. Nor should he put his hands down his trousers to scratch his... What you're all imagining is the truth. <laughs> Delicacy doesn't allow me to read that out. He must not laugh, gape, or speak loudly. Put his tongue into a dish or outside his mouth to clean his chin. I thought that's difficult anyway. He's telling you, clean his chin. Uh, or cough or belch. Nor must he pick his teeth, except with a newfangled, one of those newfangled toothpicks. Or breathe too heavily in case of bad breath. <laughs> Farting is circumscribed. <laughs> and uh, that it's courteous to wipe your mouth before drinking from the shared cup. And even 600 years ago, apparently, it was considered rude to put your elbows on the table. Uh, so, very detailed regulation of choice of behaviours at these dinner parties. It was the, uh, in terms of table, <coughs> table custom, it was the beginning of the era in which, um, uh, in which there was sharing, common cups, and uh, it wasn't the case that everyone had a knife and fork, but you kind of stab what you wanted and, and so on. So these, uh, these rules were intended to make sharing a little less painful. You can imagine sharing if all those rules were violated. It wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be a particularly pleasant experience. Okay, so there are these codes. Now, uh, let me give you another example of a code because it really quite, quite interests me. Uh, and this argument works by analogy. If you consider a game such as chess, so in the context is you're playing a game such as chess, of course, games have rules. They have codes that tell you what you can do and what you can't do. It may be that you think of yourself. It's important to, I mean, you may be a cheat, and maybe it's even possible to cheat. But if you think of yourself as part of your own personal identity, as you consider yourself to be a chess player, then your utility or well-being may, may require that you win this game of chess. But then if you're halfway through it and you're getting into a difficult situation in the game, you can consider, well, 
I could cheat. Just I could move this uh, and distract the other person and just cheat a little bit. Well, you see, there's no trade-offs there. If you do that, you cannot uh, think of yourself as a chess player anymore. As some philosophers would say, uh, the rule-governed behavior there is constitutive of your personal identity. And it's uh, anyone's guess as to whether largely rule-governed behavior would reveal a preference or not. I don't see any reason to presume that code or rule-governed behavior would lead to, you know, nice uh, behavior as though it was preference maximization. Okay, so where is this getting us? Um, there's, it seems to me that there's a lot to argue about here, um, and perhaps we will, but there are some clear messages. One is that uh, one can't say that any particular behavior think of these stories, you can't really necessarily say, well, this is irrational, unless you understand what Sen calls the external reference. That's what's the agent, what's driving the situation as far as the agent's concerned. Are they uh, code implementers? Uh, or, uh, or what is their identity? If their identity is that they want to, they want to be a polite person or a generous person, or a kind person. You need to know, and then, some of the choices, like the buffet case and the fruit plate case, they may look at, they, they only actually look as though they are non-rational, in the sense of non-preference optimizing, if you don't understand what's driving the choices. Once you do, they cease to look irrational anymore. So Sen has coined this term external reference, something external to the choice itself, and you need to know what that is before you can designate something as uh, rational or irrational. By the way, it seems to me that the argument works as much for preference as it does for choice, that uh, certain sorts of rankings may look irrational, but once you understand, well, before you can say that they are or they aren't, you need to understand the basis of the preference, what it's trying to do and what it's not trying to do. Okay, so you, uh, it seems to me that, that this is more or less the same thing as, as saying that you need to, a model of, of rational choice needs to say something about the identity of agents, that you can't really comment on rationality or irrationality until you characterize or flesh out a little bit what you're assuming, or what you think is the case about the identity of agents. What are they, a system of norms, of codes, or do they have incommensurable criteria, but several of them, or what? And that designations of irrational or rational would be conditional on certain kinds of identity, and that's as much as we can hope for. Something follows from that, and that is that, uh, let's take two people, maybe you two, 
if I sort of, perhaps you have the same identity. You say, well, what you're, what you're trying to do in your life, your values, your attitudes, they're the same. It doesn't follow that their choices must be the same because the rule that they use to get their choices or uh, to deduce or induce their choices from their identities may be different. I suppose you could always uh, define the rule as part of the identity as well. But mostly in rational choice theory, the rules are kept distinct from character characterizations. So now we say, well, what about the ordinary uh, mainstream theory of rational choice where you have a preference? And mainstream rational choice means choosing the highest available according to that preference. Well, that's a rule, isn't it? The characterization there is a preference. And the rule is choose the highest. Uh, there's not much, uh, not much really that you can argue seriously. The, the rule is obvious. The rule is obvious. If agents are characterized by, as they are in microeconomics, by a preference. Of course, it's possible that these agents could consider other rules, like choose the worst, choose the lowest ranked available. But that doesn't seem sensible if we've defined the preference in order of desirability in some sense in the first place. So the rule is obvious. The characterization, a preference, the rule, maximize, choose the highest ranked available, and then you get the choices. Out pop the choices at the other end of the model. However, with more complex, more complex uh, characterizations of agents, describing their identities uh, in more complex ways, it may not be the case that two identical identities or characterizations have the same rule for generating the choices. I think if you consider multi-criteria agents, there are probably several obvious rules for doing that. Okay, uh, let me just, yeah. Uh, some of the, the just to finish now, the, the, some of the questions that it seems to me, and you'll have your own ideas, these challenging stories, some of the, the, some, some of the questions that it raises are, uh, it, well, one cannot assume that a preference will be revealed. I've already said that. But if a preference is revealed, its interpretation is obviously still open. Desire, fulfillment, happiness, or does it simply just characterize choice, in which case the preference is just an alternative way to describe choices? Or welfare, well-being, does it reveal an agent's interests or their judgments about what ought to be done? There's still an interpretational issue, even in the case where uh, choices do reveal a preference. Then there is uh, the question of the extent of the description of the alternatives, how comprehensively the alternatives should be defined. And it's a common response to a lot of these challenging stories which I've told that uh, you know, what's really going on there is that you haven't described the alternatives comprehensively enough. If you want me to talk about that, I'm quite happy to do that. 
But finally, let me just raise an issue about the levels of rationality. Uh, you could respond to the, the fox and the grape story this way, to say that, I mean, there's, there's an issue here. Should, do you want to define rationality as conditional on certain mental states? Bearing in mind the mental states may themselves depend on the objects of choice. But even without that, do you want to define rationality in terms of uh, conditional on mental states? Or do you want to have a much grander, uh, you know, back off from that and have a much more sort of grander uh, theory of rationality that says uh, also says something about the desirability or otherwise of mental states? anxiety, happiness, so on and so forth. There's a real issue there as to the level of rationality that's required for any particular use in economics or elsewhere of mainstream rational choice theory. I think I'm just about <coughs> done, at least uh, for the moment. Nothing substantive there. It's purely formal. 
So I think for a long time economists or other rational choice felt, well, this isn't limiting, and that's a good thing because you can, you know, you, you can put, you, the preferences could depend on anything you like. And it's only in the last, uh, I think, 20 or 30 years that the kinds of questions that uh, I and others have been asking are, well, you know, perhaps it's not preference governed at all, and perhaps behavior doesn't reveal a preference. So uh, the black box, uh, you know, since I'm free to put anything in it, I want to put codes in it and norms and social norms and individual norms and put all of these things in it. Here's the problem with that, though, is that it's then, uh, it's got everything in it. It's hard to think of, a, you know, if you give me some system of choices, I'm almost sure, I mean, of course, it's an unprovable statement, but I'm almost sure that I could come up with a little story of the type that I've been telling that would give those choices. In which case, the concept of rationality, at least for economist purposes, political science too, becomes, becomes redundant. So, so uh, I think we'll end up by needing some sort of substance as well as form to restrict what goes into the black box. Yes? Yeah, well, Peter, I mean, it's a very basic question because I didn't get one of the examples you said about the, um, the person switching choice from eating chicken to then the waiter comes and says, there is truffle. And then he says, well, then I have steak. So does the truffle come with a steak? Or is there one of the Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry. <laughs> Let me tell you. Yes, the, the thing about the truffle thing. is that, that, that if you have... If you suddenly find out that uh, truffle oh, souffle yeah. is on the menu, you you may feel justified in thinking that the, the, it's, it's not a cook but a chef, that they know what they're doing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on the menu. Oh, I, I have a my. I did say that my own version of this story involved uh, uh, a trip in Japan, uh, and my love of, of raw fish, sushi, and sashimi, and. Uh, I mean, I, I like the traditional maguro, I mean, tuna or uh, salmon is okay. Um, but, uh, you know, one, one of the important things is how the fish is cut in sushi restaurants. And, uh, and if you care about the sort of finer points, then uh, you, you, might choose, you might choose salmon. Because it doesn't really matter too much how the salmon is cut. Salmon, salmon. Tuna is a different thing, especially certain parts, the bit from the, just under the shoulder. Uh, it matters very much how it's cut. Okay. So I, uh, it actually happened to me. I went into a restaurant and said, I wasn't sure about the skill of the chef. Okay, I'll have the salmon. Then it came that fugu. Do you know? You, some of you obviously know what fugu is. You know, it's this fish, highly seasonal, and if it's cut, you know, a smidgen incorrectly, you die. Or at least you get a very bad headache. Uh, only certain chefs are licensed to do this. So when I heard, when, when the uh, waiter came back and said, oh, we have fugu, well, let's put cost on one side. I'm not sure I would have been prepared to pay. For but uh, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll have the tuna. I switched my preference. 
Uh, I mean, I wasn't going to have a fugu, I'm not that brave. <laughs> but I did switch my preference. So, yes, it's this epistemic uh, that, that, you know, you can conclude certain things about the quality of the things from what's available on the menu. That's the point of the story. Yes? So I've got two questions. The first one is about the point you mentioned earlier, menu dependency. Mm. So in this case, would it make more sense to change the title of rationality with relativity? <laughs> because there won't be uncertainty. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I was afraid as it was that the, that the title would not necessarily attract the audience. It could have attracted a uh, mental health uh, audience. <laughs> uh, um, if it had been relativity, I might have had to explain myself to physicists. That would be really <laughs> tough. But I see your point. <laughs> yeah. And the second one is when I've got quite a few different alternatives in front of me, and I choose one of them over the other one, based on my own rationality or whatever. Isn't it rationality by itself? Yeah, but I think I think what you just said now, whatever it is, is the issue. The use of uh, I, I, there are several uses of uh, rational choice theory in economics, and most of them are also the same uses as in political science and other things. But uh, one of the, the I think probably the central one is in welfare economics to know does it reveal well-being or not. I mean, a, does it reveal a preference? And B, can, if so, can that preference be interpreted as, the well, as reflecting the well-being of an agent? And I mean, so that's, that's, the, that's the issue. Is there another question? Yeah, that was the second That was the second OK. Yes? Um, you mentioned Ulysses and the Simons to illustrate weak will. I want to point out that every time I hear lecturers talking about weak will, they never, I repeat, never talk about mental and moral strength. And it seems to me that if you're going to talk only about weak will, then you're going to necessarily reduce your ability to choose the difficult options. Well, uh, if you remember, my purpose in uh, one of the messages I said raised from, from that story is to raise the issue of implementation. And uh, I think that leaves <coughs> the kind of thing that you, you uh, just said really wide open. I mean, that would come under the issue of implementation. Uh, I, I mean, very little work has been done this in rational choice theory. Uh, as far as I know, rational choice theory has nothing at all to say about how to strengthen the will. No. No. That's, that's, I agree with that. It, it, Are you sure? It's not. Well, horses for courses, you see. Uh, now, uh, one has to, if you want to argue that, you have to take into account the use of the theory. It's, it's, it, it, it's simply a fact that it's not the case that the theory of rational choice 
has been developed uh, mainly by economists but game theorists and so on. It's not been uh, developed as in any sense the theory or the grand theory of rational choice. It's, it's a tool to answer certain questions in economics. So what has to be argued is to answer economists' questions or political science questions or others if introducing that assists in any way. And of course the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And I would say that we're all very open to seeing a model in which that's done. But you have to, you have to show that it makes a difference, that it somehow sheds a different light on what you would get otherwise. At least that would be my take on, on that. Uh, yes? Uh, what about probabilistic choices? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I probably should have, have been more careful at the beginning to say that I'm, uh, you know, I've distinguished colleagues in the choice group here at LSE who know far more about uh, uh, probabilistic choices, whatever one means by that. If it's the decisions under uncertainty, respected utility theory, uh, or it could be, now it could be that you mean uh, choice based on preference viewed as a random variable or noise introduced, you know, you try to optimize, but there's uh, what's, what's called uh, trembling hands. So you, you, I mean, there's all sorts of things one might mean by probabilistic choice. No, I meant more like, uh, for example, choosing on the basis of throwing a die, or on the basis of some probability distribution rather than a fixed... Are you thinking of the, the, that book called The Dice, the Dice Man? Or, uh, <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, off the top of my head, my reaction to that would be that that is a particular sort of identity. And there is this wonderful novel about somebody who tried to live their entire, I mean, whenever faced with a decision, they threw dice. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it led to an interesting life. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, that particular identity, I think, can be found in literature, but not in rational choice theory, as far as I know. Uh, yeah. But how formal is the, the theory? I was thinking of one speaking of an example where I, I could add um, a top-ranked preference to all the others and have the rest of them be completely inverted. That wouldn't matter. The re uh -huh, uh -huh. It wouldn't matter because well, it's just no, no. Or, or wouldn't matter if you were trying to do welfare. Uh, it would, because, you see, uh, for the following reason, that the way revealed preference theory is done, formally otherwise doesn't really matter, but the way it's done is you don't say, uh, look, suppose all the alternatives are available, then what would, what would the choice be? Uh, uh, if you did what you suggest, well, that would be the end of it. You would have the top-ranked choice. But suppose that wasn't available. To reveal a preference, you need to observe the choices, not just from one menu or one available set of alternatives, but from lots. Some choices control the others. Uh, For example, um, uh, the one that came to mind was uh, 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 an agent uh, encounters the desire 
about mortification. So all the preferences that he had up to that moment are completely inverted. They then become choosable and completely reversible to what they were before. Is, 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 is that not endogenous preferences of the type I mentioned? You know, so, 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 so that, I mean, uh, a lot of work being currently done by my colleagues on preference change, uh, but that one sounds to me as though it's either a, a planned change or an endogenous change. That one. And if it is an endogenous change, sorry, is that, does that take it outside of the range? Of well, as I said, forces for courses, it makes, uh, it really calls into question the use that economists want to make of revealed preference as revealing well-being. Because, you know, it, it's like if you had a ruler to measure the height of people, you know, I can measure the height of people, but suppose the, the material that the ruler is made out of responded to different human beings. It stretched or it contracted. So the standard itself becomes variable for the use that economists want to make of it. That would be the problem there. Yeah, I believe you have a question. I've got a real life example. I work for the NHS and I run a screening program for people with diabetes and basically if you've got diabetes it weakens blood vessels in your eyes and eventually they burst and you go blind. So the NHS offers everyone who has diabetes a free checkup once a year, come in and have it checked and about 40% of people who are offered it don't turn up even though they know they have diabetes. And I just wonder how are they acting rationally? Do these theories well, now you're talking now about, in a way, much more interesting things, substantive rational, rationality. Uh, what I've been, I did emphasize that mainstream rational choice is purely formal. So, uh, you know, I guess the thing to ask oneself there is uh, what, what is the characterization, the identity of, of diabetics? You know, whether they are anxiety, wish to avoid anxiety, what? But you have to understand what's going on, and that definitely, in particular applications, it's hard to see how you can do that without substantive, as opposed to formal rationality, you know, a ranking subset, stuff like that. Nice example there, thank you. Oh, yes. This may be outside your talk, but you started in talking about individual well-being. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, some individual preferences may have deleterious effects on other people or on society, and ultimately have deleterious effects on themselves. And I wonder if this is a, you know, a problem with rational choice theory. Well, it's a problem. I'm not clear to me it's a problem of rational choice theory, though. The problem, uh, I mean, viewed through the eyes of economists and planners, uh, well, there's, there's two senses in which you, you, know, you consider that a problem. The economists think of that things which, I mean, if they're just your preferences, that's one thing. But if it affects your choices, and your choices affect the well-being of other people, then economists have this whole theory of externalities uh, that, that purports to deal with 
problems like that. But the other thing, though, is that if uh, you know, if you have individuals and you imagine they're not isolated as they are socially isolated or abstract from all sort of social relations, that if there's a kind of uh, contagion, so if that's the kind of effect between one person's preference and another, then uh, I think rational choice theory doesn't have much to say, but I mean, there, there are theories in choice theory about uh, you know, the sort of effect that one person's preference has on others. And it's very difficult, though, very difficult to, to find an equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Well, methodologically, the way these models work is you 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 find an equi- equilibrium, and that is the implementation. Now, what externalities do, and I think any kind of you know a lot of interaction uh, between the characteristics of individuals it makes it much harder to find an equilibrium. So it makes the, uh, makes the problem much more difficult to solve. Mine is a, a little bit of a basic question. What is the difference between form and substance? Oh, by form, uh, I mean structure. So, uh, I mean, so, when I'm talking about the, the formal or structural, I mean, uh, I mean, a model in which says, okay, somebody has a preference that's x is above y is above z, and so on. Now you don't have the interpretation. There are no reasons as to why x. Uh, I mean, for most purposes, that's irrelevant in economics, but not perhaps for in general rational choice theory. So uh, I think. To, to understand the problem he raised from the NHS about diabetics. You need to understand the substance there, the reasons behind it. And I think, uh, as I said, the message of some of these stories is that you need to understand the characterization and the identities of the agents. That is, in a way, saying you, you or it, it sometimes means that you uh, need to, you need a bit of substance in the model before you can decide whether something is irrational or not. <coughs> so reason, reasons, interpretations, and so on. I have You said earlier that we can't put anything in the box. saying you can put everything in the box. Everything else. Norms, <coughs> what have you. Uh, so could we then, in example like this, could we then re-describe the options or re-describe the outcomes just that they include the norm that is covering the action? Yeah. Uh, I, I knew somebody would ask this. Uh, I nearly got away without having to answer it. Uh, yeah. Uh, the... the 
just to explain what I think your, your point is here, that these two ends, for example, are not the same. Choosing M from a big plate is not the same as choosing M from a smaller selection. Okay, now you can of course do that. And in some sense I think this is down to the pragmatics of modeling. There's, for this type of modeling there's no one correct model. There are alternative ways and they each have their own strengths and weaknesses. But uh, that, that's a, a kind of cop out, really. Um, but here's some remarks. I don't have a final answer to the point you raise. But here's some remarks. Um, if you re-describe the alternatives in this way, firstly, things become rapidly more complicated. <coughs> you lose the economist's notion of feasibility, because if you say, well, I'm choosing M from this plate as opposed to M from that plate, you see, the plate describes what's feasible, and uh, mostly the methodology in economics works by saying if you change the feasible set, what's possible to do, then you look at, at what change that makes in behavior, so-called comparative statics. That becomes a lot more difficult. Of course, that's not a, you know, if there's good reason for doing that, that's not a sort of trump card. Um, two more remarks, though, and I think these are very strong pragmatic reasons for not necessarily doing that. One is that if you want to, uh, the, the way reveal preference theory is done is you, you uh, look at choices and then there are mathematical theorems that say, well, if the choices have this property and that property, then they are consistent with optimizing preference. That's, that's a, a question of theorem and proof. But it, all, it, it comes down to the properties that, are, uh, that choices may or may not have. Now, the, it's in the nature of those properties that if you uh, particularize the, def the definition of the alternatives to the extent you wish, all these properties will be satisfied. And therefore, the results on whether this is consistent with preference optimization or not become vacuous. I mean, it would be impossible not to have behavior that, that could have come from optimizing the preference. Uh, the, the other, the fine, I mean, I could go on about this long time, but the other, one more argument against it uh, is that in models, You know, I've already argued for the fact you need to understand what your objectives, your identity, your characterization. That will determine then what's the relevant definition of an alternative in your case. Well, your friend sitting behind you has a different identity and so on. The alternatives themselves may be quite different. So that the definition of the alternatives become agents, they become agent relative. Imagine a model that you have to specify the alternatives uh, individually for every single agent, although they may well refer to the same overall situation. So these are pragmatic reasons for not necessarily going in that direction. Yeah. Just following on that, that way, 
all the challenging stories which I've told can be brought back within preference optimization by a sufficiently comprehensive description of the alternatives. Uh, whether that's the uh, useful way to model is the issue I've just raised in uh, answering the previous question. Um, uh, but for purposes pure reveal preference theory, you know, it's useless to do that because you, it wouldn't distinguish between choices that are consistent with preference optimization and choices which are not. So you get coherence, but at a cost. Yes, you get coherence but uselessness for the purpose that this theory was raised in the first place. Yeah. I'm not sure if my question is related to your topic, but what makes a choice rational? What, what, what is rational? It's certainly related to the topic. I think that is. <laughs> that is. Uh, I mean, when I finished, I, 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 I mean, I can't really give you a definitive. It seems to me, though, that you can only, as I said at the end, you can only answer that question relative to uh, a description or a characterization of an agent and their identity. Unless you think that it's that certain that the way that certain agents could be that you can say well that it would be rational to have that identity maybe i guess that's an open issue but all all i mean it's very, it becomes very much easier once you specify the identity of an agent what what's driving them their motives what are they trying to do or get or be then relative to that in other words, instrumentally, one should be able to say something about what's rational and what's not. So no, no, no grand, absolute, definitive uh, uh, test for what's rational and what's not. As I, I think I said, that any, I, I I'm sure that I could tell a, a story that made any choices rational. Let's see. Well, then would you deny uh, sorry, let's... Uh, Yes. Uh, including um, deliberately making oneself irrational, uh, under, undermining one's ability to be rational. In the well, there could be good reasons for doing that, couldn't there? And then to be rational? <laughs> well, uh, now, I'm not going to get drawn <laughs> into, into this uh, too far. Uh, look, Ultimately, the standard is, I think, the simple one that Donald Davidson gave. Are there good reasons? Uh, it's, it's not a matter of whether uh, another person thinks that that's wise. That's not the question, is it wise? Is it, maybe. It's a question of whether the agent themselves can give good reasons. Of course, it's a vague thing. What constitutes a uh, good reason. It's even not particularly clear what constitutes a reason. But we would probably recognize it when we see cases of definitely good, clear reasons. And I can imagine somebody who uh, uh, undermined their own abilities or capabilities for some greater good uh, 
uh, I mean, what about people who fast? They will ultimately uh, undermine their abilities to, their capabilities to run fast times at uh, 1,500 meters. There might be a point at which when they were to undermine the, their thinking capacity so that they couldn't decide to stop fasting, one might say at that point it was irrational. I, if they give good reasons, I mean, are you saying that no, no re there are no good reasons for doing that? I think it would be very hard to put a case for there being a good reason for undermining one's own autonomous thinking uh, I imagine that some people might. I don't know. Is there any? Yeah, but they are, they are presently, obviously, um, let's start from another angle. Question of agents or plural agent agents on one side, and the question of audiences, uh, groups, uh, and global. <coughs> so for a global audience, the question is a completely different one, and uh, solves some of the uncertainty which you answered to the relatively uncertain statement. Beginnings. Greater good. Obviously, what is in the moment published serves for the discipline of a global audience on a massive scale. Uh, that means for uh, mainstream uh, consumption, for the consumption of elaborate uh, commentaria. But uh, when it comes to the dramatic uh, agencies uh, of I don't know, 100, 200 nations, uh, they all of a sudden learn a couple of things which previously they didn't know in most cases. In German Klartext, I don't know what it is in English. Uh, uh, so, with other words, uh, then of course we are in the realm of the definition of greater, greater good. So, how do you really go along with the Russian choice in that realm? <laughs> Let me. Uh now you've given me a couple of minutes to think a bit more about what she said. Of course, uh, a kind of Kantian response, uh, Kantian flavor anyway, would say, well, of course, um, if the agent describes their identity, their motives, their values, their attitudes, uh, if there was, and then said, so, then I'm, this is what I am, and so I'm going to do this. If there was sort of obviously a, a logical inconsistency there somewhere, I, I guess you can certainly argue that that's, that's irrational, I suppose. And it might be possible. But the, the criteria there is a logical one, inconsistency. I think, unfortunately, that our time is up. Oh, already. We can continue the discussion at the reception, again, to which you're all invited, just follow us. And before we go over, I just wanted to make two uh, brief announcements about two events we have next week, because they're not in the program, unfortunately. Um, so one is a talk by Professor Dan Hausman on preferences, which will take place on Monday. And then on Friday, um, Monday the 13th next week, and then on Friday next week, the 17th, there will be a panel discussion in the afternoon here at the LC about valuing the humanities, which is a very distinguished uh, set of panelists. And for further information on the exact details of the location and the time, uh, please refer to 
our website. You can find the address of the website in the program. So if you don't have a program, just pick one up and extra copies here. And again, now join us at the reception.